The future of health coaching. Opportunity, action, impact. Brought to you by Teleosis Institute, coaching and narrative healing. Welcome to the Future of Health Coaching Summit. I'm Reggie Mara, Creative Director at Teleosis Institute. And on behalf of Joel Kreisberg, our Executive Director, I'm happy to welcome today Margaret Moore as our guest. Um, Margaret, after 17 years in the biotechnology industry, founded and is currently CEO of Well Coaches Corporation, which has trained more than 10,000 health professionals in 45 countries. She is a co-founder of the Institute of Coaching at McLean Hospital, an affiliate of Harvard Medical School, and co-leader of the National Consortium for Credentialing Health and Wellness Coaches. She's also the co-author of the 2012 release, Organize Your Mind, Organize Your Life, and of the forthcoming, in September of 2016, Organize Your Emotions, Optimize Your Life. That latter title informs the focus of our conversation today, which is coaching the inner family. That rests on the notion that the human psyche is not singular, but multiple, like a family. And today, we'll be talking about um, an introduction to a framework for coaching this inner family. So with that little bit of introduction, um, and there's a lot more I could have said, welcome, Meg. Thank you so much, Reggie. Um, it's a delight to be with you today. Yeah, great, thanks. So I'd like to just jump right in. Um, and I, I got access to uh, uh, some information about the new book a couple of days ago, and I looked through it, and um, it began speaking to these nine sub-personalities. And as I looked through them, um, the first question that arose for me was how do these fit in with some other models of which I'm aware, which are personality typing models like Myers-Briggs or the Enneagram, um, voice dialogue, which speaks to different inner voices and different archetypal models. So um, I know it's not the same thing, yeah. um, but I'm curious as to how you see your work complementing and or juxtaposing itself with uh, some of these other things. Yeah, right. Well, th that's a great question. Uh, and it takes me back to how this all came together. Uh, I was, um, I spent three years getting trained in internal family systems practice, which is a model for, uh, in a mindful fashion, going inside and allowing one's inner voices and sensations, motions, physical sensations to just emerge without effort. So you're in a, a state of mindful um, observation and the parts then speak to you. And you learn through that experience that your parts are independent entities. And in the internal family systems model, the, there is no uh, structure. There's nothing universal or standardized. It's a model of sort of going inside and bumping into your parts in the dark. That's how it felt to me. And as I was in this experience, I, as a biologist, I thought about how evolution would have created this phenomenon of separate entities. And it seemed to me that there had to be some kind of strengths-based shared scaffolding for that inner world. And frankly, my own parts told me their stories and gave me their names. But I didn't have the whole picture just from that. Uh, I then began to explore Enneagram, which has nine uh, personality types. My model has nine subpersonalities, as well as uh, Dick Schwartz, who founded Internal Family Systems, has uh, eight uh, letter Cs, he calls them, confident, creative, etc. So when I went through Enneagram, I was mapping my experience of mine with that, and I discovered the ninth one, which you'll laugh at this, happened to be my dominant personality type. Okay. <laughs> the one I was most embedded in sure. and didn't see, right? So I really was so grateful to the Enneagram model for helping, um, helping that. Uh, this might, you might think I'm really crazy, but I also have been, a, I see how it maps to the planets, the sun and eight planets. Okay. So that, that works. So 
uh, I'm, I'm a little familiar with voice dialogue and some of the others, the archetypes. And uh, in fact, if you know the Pixar movie Inside Out, sure, yeah. there are five parts there. So, and the chakras have eight or nine, or, well, sorry, seven, I think yeah. it is. I'm not so, and, and there's a little bit of overlap there, but they map to the same. So, uh, so, so I was looking for, I, I, I started with the internal experience and then I went looking for all the different models that would, to see whether I was missing anything, to see whether I had it, I was off somewhere. Mm -hmm. and, and so I most certainly bounced back and forth with these other models to kind of more fully understand what I was looking at. Okay, great. I, I, thank you for that, that, that introduction and, and for responding to the question. And one thing you said, which I don't think we have to really spend a lot of time with here, but I think it's a thread that we might follow as this conversation unfolds is you, you said that the uh, the one piece that this, these are my words now but the one piece that was missing that you didn't see at first ended up being your dominant piece or your dominant type or dominant subpersonality and i it, just in my own experience um often the very thing it, it even goes back to the subject object move where the thing that's subject that's really strongest in us that's that's controlling us or dominating us is the hardest one to see. Yeah. So I, I just really appreciate that that, that was well, your that, experience. That, okay, so the first thing I learned in the first retreat in mm -hmm. training was that who I thought I was was just a part of me. Okay. And that was the first major discovery that the way I operated in the world, because my top uh, type is the um, achiever, the, what I call the standard setter. And the number two is the CEO part. I'm blanking on what it's called in um, Enneagram, but it, it's the, uh, it's the, um, it's a, it's a pow, pow, part that projects power. I think the genetics and the, the biology of that comes from the predatory, the, the need to be a predator way, way, way back. So it's that like CEO, I want to control things, I want to exert power. That's the eight, that's the eight, or they call it the boss or the leader in the end. That's right, so the three and the eight are my two. And so it was an, I mean, it rocked my world yeah. Yeah. to realize that that was just, they were just parts. They clearly that they, they emerged from my genes and I am at peace with the fact I can't change those. Mm -hmm. They're going to be the loudest. Well, they're not so loud. They're just very subtle, subtly driving who I am and what I do. Sure. And and so finding that out and then being able to realize that I could separate from those mm -hmm. and I could see other parts and then I could wake up to that I had all these different aspects of me that were not getting as much attention. Yeah. And uh, it, it it has changed who I who how I am. I mean, it hasn't changed. What I do in my life, I have the same marriage, I have this, live in the same house, I have the same uh, businesses and, and nonprofits. So those things haven't changed. But my own experience of myself is very, very different than it was three years ago, sure. three, four years ago. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's what you're describing for yourself. And in, in my hearing it is, is what we wish for all of our clients. Um, that we go through a process, whether it's with a coach or we do it ourselves, and, and that we develop and we, we shift and we see more of ourselves, not that we choose to disown any of it, but we can hold it differently so that was what is primary isn't necessarily going to be as much in control anymore, and we can grow those other aspects which may have been ignored or almost invisible or so it's, I think it's beautiful that you unfold this, and you said this to me before we began this conversation, that you don't, you don't do anything um, in professionally, whether it's well coaches or your other work that you haven't tried on yourself first. Um, and that's, you know, that's uh, only fair. So it's, it's wonderful. Yeah. So could, could you then begin, I mean, we're, we're speaking about these, uh, um, you describe them as nine universal entities. Would it make sense to um, unpack them briefly each to to go around the the, the circle as you presented it and and just speak briefly to each one of them and, and yes. what they represent? Yes, 
Yes, let's do that. And I want to add to the perhaps the reason that I did find the scaffolding yeah. is that it also emerged after Well Coaches had built our advanced training. Mm -hmm. And the constructs that are the are central to our advanced training are I was deeply immersed in. And in terms of the science and the and the guru, the gurus, they wouldn't necessarily call themselves gurus, but the you know, the people who made their life's work sure. a particular domain, you know, like Paul, Paul Wong in Toronto. Let's just, uh, this phone is ringing. Sorry, I'll, I'll help you cut it out if we need to. So for instance, there is, so for instance, there are one or two scientists and psychologists who have made it their life's work to really understand a particular dimension of being human. Uh, Paul Wong in Toronto, uh, who is brought to life and kept uh, on living uh, Victor Frankl's work around meaning and the meaning maker. And so, so I was familiar, pretty familiar with all these subpersonalities because we had happened upon them as we were building out uh, a model for coaching. And so I think I was already very schooled in them and my, my inner world understood what they were, right? Because I'd been thinking about it and coaching around it. So what that means, even if, because many of our listeners may never really want to move into this uh, inner family kind of world, you can be assured that each of these constructs is well known. There, will, there are no surprises here. What I'm adding is the ability to see these as distinct parts of the psyche that we as coaches can trust are there. So when we, when we make the point that clients have the answers, there is somewhere in their psyche a set of perspectives and also an inner coach that can be accessed and that it has the wisdom that people need. So, so you don't need to think about it as parts of your psyche. You just need to understand that they are parts of who we are as being human. And uh, we can send out with this recording the map with all the different aspects of each so that people can have something to look at that's available. Sure, great. One way to think about these nine too is that the way I see it is that it's a way of simplifying a set of terms that are used by coaches and psychologists that all have different maps. So we have uh, maps of our needs. So if you think about um, Marshall Rosenberg and nonviolent communication, and he's mapped out all these needs, think about values and you think about Chris Peterson and Marty Seligman who've masked, mapped, sorry, mapped out values and action. You think about drives or motivation, and then you think about Ed DC and Rich Ryan with self-determination theory and their core drives. And then you think of strengths and capacities. So I think these nine underpin all of that. Okay. That each of these subpersonalities manifest as a need or a value or a drive or a, or a strength or capacity. Mm -hmm. So that makes it simpler as opposed to having one list for one type and one list for another and one list for another, which, which for me just seems overly complex. Sure. So, so then let me take you through the nine. Yeah, please. Yeah. And uh, I'll tell you, there's a couple different ways to do this. And I'm thinking myself now, which is the better way to do it? One is that because I'm a biologist and I'm married to an evolutionary biologist, we have, uh, drawn a, a, a journey through evolution of how these would have emerged. So that's one way to, to, to tell you about them. The other way is to, to do it how I do it in my morning journaling. Because every morning I spend up to an hour and a half, in the, longer on the weekends, less when I'm busy during the week, interviewing each one. And so that is a, a different way of listing them. So I don't know, do, do you have, I'm wondering which would be the most well, I'll, I have an, I, both of those sound attractive to me, but I'll give you my bias because a big part of what we do at Teleosis and, and my contribution to it is around narrative healing and using you know, the power of story. So the idea that you, and you mentioned this earlier, that you have this conversation every morning and you journal, and that's, a, that's one example of a narrative. Or, so I'd love for you to unfold it on that way, and especially okay. since that's your, 
your daily practice. So it's, it's, it feels more hands-on and less academic that way as well. well. And then I can actually relate it to what actually happens every day. Yeah. So we'll do that. And I also want to just assure our listeners that I have a, a, a deck of slides that map it to evolution. So that's also available. Um, okay, great. So, so I'll start then with autonomy. And if you know DC and Ryan's work, they would say that the primary force, driving force of organisms, uh, human organisms, is the need for autonomy, which is the expression of free will. You know, I'm the master of my uh, destiny. I'm the captain of my ship. I'm the boss of me. I uh, am, um, I want to self-actualize. And, and that voice, and that's our identity, that's who we see ourselves as being and, and what, what is authentic for us. Uh, and so I start there. And when I have not started there, it doesn't work as well. So there's something that aligns nicely with what DC and Ryan say, that autonomy really is. And, and the other thing just to mention, too, is that, that my uh, experience of this psyche is that for every part, so you know Newton's third law, every force has an equal and countervailing opposite force. The same operates in the psyche. So autonomy is in conflict with other parts of us. The one we think about most is the conflict between autonomy and our relational. So our need to serve ourselves and our need to serve others. Those are discrete and separate. And for me, both of those are very strong. I'm strongly, intensely loyal to people. And I have a strong need for autonomy. So that is very alive in me all the time as a tension. So, so anyway, so autonomy is first. Uh, second is the body regulator. So, uh, so, and actually going just to, let me just go back to autonomy for a second. So the, the biological basis for autonomy is probably results from the need of organisms to leave their nest. Sure. So the force of the life force that's required to get out of the nest and fly at great risk and peril is got to be very strong. So that's, you know, that's, I think, the roots of that. So, so second, we have the body regulator. So this is probably the most basic, because if you go back to the simplest organisms like bacteria, you've got the need for safety, for security, for nutrition, and you've got the need for homeostasis and balance. Uh, so this is the part of us that speaks for health, for energy, for safety, for security. Uh, for sustainability. Sure. So when we're in touch with this, we feel the earth's need for all of these things. Okay. You know, so it's a very, and, you know, as you know, those of us in the health and wellness field, we're very aware that we're very in touch with this. That's why we take good care of our bodies. Right. But society-wide, this is a missing, uh, this voice is not getting as much attention as it needs because it would tell us to get more sleep it would tell us to exercise you know it's all there that this is you know if it, the coaching question is if your body had a voice what would it say yeah, yeah. you know and it, ha it has a lot to say yeah. so that's the body regulator uh, the next one is confidence okay. um, i think biologically this emerged when organisms needed to be predators and they had to know their competence in order to attack a prey because if you misjudge that you'd be the one that lost the, the battle so it's the it's the not it's the awareness of how competent i am at a particular task and it has a lot of power because if we don't feel confident then we don't do things uh, of any kind you know it's a, there are many dynamics that create procrastination um, but one of them is that we are worried that we will fail. And so, so that's confidence. And this part of us wants to build confidence and it wants to use our competence well. So I have a question there, and it's, it's not a particularly original question, um, but it, it, it comes to the surface for me. 
and it, well, I'll just, I'll just ask it without qualifying it further. So in, in your experience with this, um, does competence precede confidence? Does confidence make competence possible? Or is it a chicken and egg type relationship where um, it's hard to really discern? I've never thought about this question, so I'm gonna just make a wild guess. Okay, okay. I think it's circular. Okay. I think that, I mean, clearly babies start walking without mm -hmm. competence. So they must, and this is where maybe why Bandura says that role models are so important because via mirror neurons, we're watching others. Yeah. And we're learning by watching. Yeah. So I think it's not just the doing of it that builds it. Okay. I think it's the, the experiencing of others doing it. Uh, and maybe that's where it starts. Maybe that's the first step that, that you observe someone else mm -hmm. and you say, well, if they can do it, maybe I can. Yeah. And then you build your competence over time. So maybe that's how, it's, how it evolved to play out. But for us adults, you know, we need, we need to be continuing to build our competence in order to get more confidence. Yeah. So they're very codependent yeah. in our lives. Yeah, great, no, thank you for, for that. I was, I was curious, not, not that I was asking you for a definitive answer for the universe, but I, I was just curious as to your take on that. So well, I appreciate, you know, look, yeah. what, do, what do we love as coaches? Great questions, because yeah. they make us think about things in new ways, and I won't forget that. That'll now, I'll be thinking about that for the rest of my life. <laughs> all your fault. Okay, good, I'll take the blame, thank you. Um, so, so yeah, you, so you actually were, I, I, I interrupted you at the end of the uh, introduction to confidence. Please, please uh, let's make this back and forth. I prefer that. So yeah. keep going. Okay. So then after confidence comes creative. Mm -hmm. And this is an interesting one for me because this was, you know, what I was telling you that I've been Margaret all my life and then Meg was born eight years ago. Meg is the creative and Meg, my creative son, I would have said to you 10 years ago that I'm not a creative person. I'm an integrator. Okay. I'm not a, I, I pull things together and synthesize them. That was my, that which is much more a strength of the executive manager, which we'll get to, which is highly developed for me, which is why I can write about the organized mind. But it's through this inner family work and my own unraveling of the tectonic plates of my, yeah. you know, of my genes that, that I have come to realize that, that I actually am a creative. And so this part has been a big surprise for me. And, uh, and so it's the part, obviously, that is, doesn't like structure, mm -hmm. loves spontaneity, impulsive, um, you know, it can be impulsive. Uh, I think in the health space, when people don't have creative expression, their impulses reach for the brownie instead of the apple or the, you know, that it, it's a need. And if it doesn't get mad through creative expression, it pops out somewhere else. Uh, it loves to play. It loves humor, loves to have fun. Uh, it's not so concerned about achievement or competence. I mean, each of these has very distinct agendas. And, and when I interview them each morning, they have a different thing to say about the day. It's like there's nine completely different opinions of what's going on. Uh, and so the creative is, in my inner family, it's not very loud. Like a creative person, in, when I do coaching sessions with people who are creatives, I mean, this part just goes on and on and on and on. You can even hear it now, right? You can see it's like, it's really old. <laughs> it's very talkative it's got lots to say and you know most of my life I've kept that that kind of under wraps so you get that most people out there who are creative know what I mean and those of you who have kept it under wraps can uh, be um, encouraged by the fact that if they let it out once in a while or even every day that it would bring more life and life force to their lives Sure, and hey, I guess I could jump in there too because as a poet, and with a, I have a wonderful twenty, almost twenty-seven-year-old stepson who's a visual artist, um, and I, I probably have more of that high energy than he does. Um, but his, his creativity tends to be 
really contained and focused. Um, so the creative part of him is less likely to be big and out there and talk about it, but it all gets channeled in yeah. through the brush. Yeah, nice. Um, so I, I'm wondering if, if the, the specific context or content of the creative impacts how it shows up in the world. Yeah, well, you know, what, what the other dimension to this, of course, is our ta natural talents. Sure. Right. You know, so I think that our autonomy probably drives us to find creative places and then confidence tells us where we'd be good at it. And so we, you know, we, you, you find the things that you're interested in and that you're good at, and then there's your potential for creativity. So it operates very differently for every person. Yeah. And some of us are, I, I mean, I couldn't write a song if my life depended upon it. Um, I, maybe I could learn to paint. I don't know. It's my, my zones of creativity are what we do here. They're not, you know, I follow recipes when I cook, you know, I mean, you know, so, so it, I think it, you know, parents all want to help their kids find the place where they, their creative juices flow, sure. you know, where they're good at something and they like doing it. And, and so it is wherever that, ha that overlap is, you know, wherever you've got some talent, uh, and maybe not a huge amount of talent. I mean, you don't have to be a professional at, a, at being creative. And certainly the more uh, skill you get, the more creative you become too. So there, it, it isn't a, it, it's a, it's a developmental kind of path, all of these parts. So yeah, so I think we each have our own ways of doing it. Yeah. And I love the way you just tied in, and this is a, an important thread for, for all of us to remember as you unfold these subpersonalities, you just tied in the relationships among the creative, the confidence, the autonomy, and you didn't, you didn't get to the executive manager yet, but you're getting there. So they, they, they're definitely having conversations with each other or they impact each other at some level, I'm assuming. Exactly. Well, it's a family. Yeah. yeah. And the mood of one affects the other and, and they, exactly. And they cluster together and they gang up on each other. You know, it's all, it's, it's pretty typical family. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's never the same every any, next moment. Yeah. Yeah. So great. So, so we're, we're with the creative and who's next. Okay. So then next we have what I call the curious adventurer. Okay. And uh, this is very strong in me too. So this is the part that wants novelty. Right. It wants to take risks. It's an entrepreneur, okay. which I am. Yep. Uh, more a social entrepreneur than a pure, I, I put contribution before money by a long shot. But, but uh, it's the part that, you know, for me, it's, it's shopping, online shopping. You know, I, you know, if I don't get enough adventure somewhere else, then I'm looking at new clothes. It's, so it's, you know, because I love, I love clothes. And it's, it's unfortunately, it's an expensive <laughs> adventure. <but laughs> means I'll be working until I'm 100 in order to support it. But yeah, so it's the need for new mm -hmm. and uh, it's the appetite for new. And it is, uh, in fact, in society, curiosity is going down a lot because our devices are, are taking us away from moments of just simple being curious, simply being curious. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so it is, it's underneath uh, addiction, I think, um, that and creativity. If we don't have creative outlets and we don't have things that are new, then we we have to find them somewhere. So, so this is a this is a very important part. This would have been the the part that probably evolved after bacteria because bacteria are sitting static; they don't move. But at some point, organisms started to move, which meant they had to take risks. They had to move into environments that where they had no idea whether they were going to. I mean, obviously, they weren't thinking about this, but you know, you know, the amoebas reaching out into the and surrounding environment to to find food. So, so it, it it's a it's a counterpart. It's a countervailing force to the body regulator. So, which means at any one moment, you've got a part that wants to go to a party on Saturday night, and the part that wants to stay home and curl up. Yeah. And there's a very good example of that dynamic. Uh, and people who take huge risks, this is fierce in them. Okay. Because they, and it is a need. They need to do this and it can jeopardize everything else. Uh, and so just, just shows you how one need 
can really overwhelm another. So, yeah, and do, do you have any, I know this is still unfolding in many ways, is there any, especially with the, the curious explorer, was that the language? Curious adventurer. Adventure, okay. Um, is, there, is there any relationship between um, the, the primary or secondary nature of the curious adventurer and chronological age? Is it, does it, does it shift? I mean, because culturally, this is, what I'll say is kind of a, a stereotype, but my memory of childhood and my experience as a teacher, as, as a uh, institutionalized teacher in, in a, on a high school level, and I, even as a teaching poet going into elementary schools for some years, that the curious adventurer is really alive in kids through about third grade, maybe fourth, but as soon as they become socially aware and, and, and men, boys become aware of girls and there's a little bit of pressure there to, to look good, their curiosity, their sense of adventure tends to dwindle and they kind of start to get more compartmentalized in how they show up. So is it, go well, ahead. That, I mean, that's basically what's happening. I mean, if, you know, evolution sculpted you up until you're born, right? Your genes are thrown together in a random pile. Yeah. So you have all these parts. And then, you know, then they, man they manifest when you're a little child and then your parents first are shaping and telling you what you can't do and what you can do. So then stuff gets shut down out of loyalty. You gotta, you know, you gotta stay attached to your parents. Then you go to school and then you've got your peers and then you've got the system and then you get to be an adult and it's all sculpted by the fact that we've got all these demands and expectations. So you're a long way from who you were when you started by the time you get through all of this. And one of the parts that collectively pays price is that, in, is that well, first, the part that gets overemphasized is the achiever. Okay. Because we are, in Western society, we are an achievement-based culture. And then what gets left behind often is the curiosity because you're so focused you don't have your you have no open horizon you're not tuning in you're on send mode all the time you're not on receive mode and curiosity is about tuning in and receiving so that gets you know sculpted down and then your creativity for a lot of people that gets sculpted down because you know your job kind of type does so yeah so you end up far from your natural life force and then of course what happens is people then start looking for who am i yeah. what do i really want to do and they go to all sorts of workshops and retreats trying to find out you know i know there's something in me that i am not using and you know and then often people retire and finally get to do what they really want to do yeah. and then some of us well if you follow the work engagement stats probably 70% of us who were not engaged on our work are not using our life force that we, that we were born with in our work. And that is a colossal waste yeah. of human potential. So, yeah. So, and curiosity has dwindled in the last 20 years. There's a great book called a beautiful question. Okay. Uh, the, and, and the author uh, quotes Clay Christensen at Harvard business school who says that the Harvard business school students are much less curious than they were 20 years ago. So not only are we sculpting it and, and constraining it throughout um, development from children through teenagers, it, we're also doing it in, in terms of today, today's society is very different than it was 20 years ago. So we are, we're losing something. Yeah, I agree with that. And we could, I don't want to go too far further down that particular path because we'll, we might not get out during this conversation. And I agree 100%. I think there's... there's there's both uh, clear you know, research evidence, but a lot of anecdotal evidence of that in a lot of different places, so yeah. Yeah. Well, good, so then let's go to the executive manager. So yeah. please. the part of us that, it, that loves order and clarity and um, setting priorities and getting things done and being on time uh, and, and as a result, I mean, it has, it, it has some interesting um, dimensions like strategic thinking, uh, and it can shake things up. It can be, I think it aligns with Mercury, the planet, it, which sees the structure, the whole structure of the universe, you know, of, the, of our universe. And, uh, 
but if you are a creative type, I've, I've seen this in many, many clients when I take them through the interviewing each of these parts. The creatives think this part's really boring. Okay. So it gets stuck in a closet and it doesn't get out very much. And it's a sort and, and it, it's a nice part. So it doesn't necessarily uh, yell and scream a whole lot, but it, it, anybody that tells you they've got attention deficit disorder or that they're creative, they're disorganized. Um, the, another perspective on this is that they really do have an inner organizer. And if they would just give it a little chance, you know, even just 10 minutes a day, five minutes a day, it would do wonders. Now this part does evolve, develop over time because self-regulation and executive function uh, doesn't mature until people are well into their twenties. So, you know, this is an example of a part of us that that is uh, slow, slower to evolve. And I have two step grandkids, nine and seven, and you know, we talk about organizing their rooms. <laughs> so far, <laughs> they've got a part that knows how to do this and wants to do it, but it's not winning the it's not winning the uh, popularity contest. So. So yeah, so this is a part of us that is uh, essential, you know, and if you think about the animal kingdom, you think about birds building nests, beavers building dams, that ability to organize, you know, put, put stuff together, build something is, well, everybody's got it. And uh, just some of us have a bigger dose than others. Then we get to the relational. So, you know, that's not hard to relate to. This is the part of us that is focused on serving others, pleasing others, meeting others' needs. And that is its number one priority. Sure. So it's in direct contrast to all the others in a way. You know, it holds the, the purpose of others, other people matter. And for those people who have a real strong dose of this, then they do put other people first often more than is good for the rest of them. So, so that's an example of that part going, you know, being overdeveloped or being particularly strong. Yeah. Yeah. And then I just, I can imagine, uh, just again, as you did earlier in the conversation, just beginning to see the relationships among these family members. So someone who's putting relationship first and especially let's say, you know, a, a move toward an intimate relationship, the roles that um, cu the curious adventurer and confidence would play in in relationship, the ability to really take the risk to to engage uh, someone and and um, and have the confidence to do that. So I can I can just see these little these little meetings um, beginning to to take place to say, okay, what we're really what's really going to go on here? Yeah, 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 and and when when we got a lot of agitation mm -hmm. uh, because these parts are not getting their needs met. They, you know, they're, they're stuck in some old dynamic and old pattern. Often what suffers is our ability to connect with other people because we get very focused inwardly on our own noise. And, uh, and the more whole we become, the more we have to give. And so this really speaks to the need to take care of our own needs, to put on the oxygen mask first, yep. so that we then truly can give to others. And one of the things that comes out of this work is that you have huge empathy for where people are at right now, because, because their, their particular state of mind and the state of their lives is directly manifesting their inner world. And if it's, if it's not working well, then they're suffering and they simply don't have the conscious awareness of where it's off. You know, they might have some, and, and as a coach, we're so fortunate if we're moving into deeper work, I don't mean standard health and wellness coaching, but you know, if you're a coach that works at a deeper level, you're really helping people sort all this out and figure out where, you know, what needs to shift that will free up more resources. And then we can give more to other people, which feels good. feels awfully good. Oh, it does. And I, lo I love what you just said about standard health and wellness coaching. And I just have a, and this is not exclusive to me, but the, those two words, health and wellness, um, you know, go beyond 
you know, we'll park the car further from the store so you have to walk a little bit today and buy more green things. I mean, health and wellness, not just the physical body, which is very important, but it's, it's the heart, it's the soul, it's the spirit and all of that. And that's what you're really speaking to. And, uh, yes, and I, yeah. think that, I think the path, the ladder that coaches in the health space move up is that you start with, and I did too, you start with the health behaviors yeah. because they're, they have huge potential. I mean, you know, if we take good care of our bodies right. then we have somewhere to live, you know, and we don't have somewhere to live if we don't. So, so it does come first, but as you grow as a, as a coach, then you get more interested in the bigger conversation. Sure. And that's certainly been my journey yeah. over 16 years going from, you know, the original, you know, originally health behaviors. And I personally, you know, I certainly do cover those things with my clients, but now I've gone into this kind of whole holistic kind of place. Sure. So I think it's just a matter of evolving over time and, and coaches will do that as they learn more about themselves and they get more interested in, you know, a bigger uh, conversation. And, and in the end, uh, our coaching toolbox uh, at the basic level does not meet every client's needs. And so if we want to keep improving our impact and be successful more of the time, then we do need to bring more tools into our toolbox. And so one can look at, I mean, I'm, you know, getting going, I'm a few, only a few years from 20 years at this. And, and so, and I keep growing and who knows where that will take me. I mean, the one thing about coaching is uh, as long as your brain's working, there's no need to stop. You know, age is not a limitation. Yeah. Yeah. The, good, the good news and the bad news is there's always more to learn. Yes. It's, most, it's, it's mostly good news. From the curious adventurous standpoint, it's... Oh, yeah. It, yeah. yeah. From the tired parts of us, oh, no. Yeah. Really? Yeah. <laughs> We're not done yet? <laughs> good. So then the next is the standard setter, which is the part of us that has a measuring stick. So it walks around measuring everything. Okay. So it's, it asks the question, what is good enough? Am I good enough? Are you good enough? Am I doing enough? Have I accomplished enough? You know, is this fair? Are they doing enough to be fair to me? So it's, it's the, it, you can feel the energy as I talk about it. It's the judge. Yeah. It's a harsh, because it's socialized as to be the part with a stick. I mean, sometimes it has a carrot, but it is pushing us. Yeah. It, it, it's what pushes our culture to achieve. And sometimes to get ahead of our skis, as people say, because we, we achieve more than we're really, all of us are ready to, to handle. So this is a part that is um, very uh, well developed in our culture to the exclusion of others. And, you know, you saw, you heard my energy as I moved into that part. Okay, so that's that part. And that used to be me most of the time. And I've been trying to embody each as we've been going through them. And if I pull myself back into other parts, then I'm more content, I'm more balanced, I'm more thoughtful. So the standard setter is um, fierce. Mm -hmm. And when people struggle, I remember when I started this work, I thought, I can't imagine what contentment is like. I had no coordinates for that in my inner world. Okay. I mean, maybe occasionally on vacation, I'd have a fleeting moment of, uh, you know, I feel content. That's the, that's this part at its best when we really are at peace and content. Um, but most of the time, this part's needs are pretty fierce and it drives us pretty hard. And, and one of the big lessons I've learned is that when this part is content, ironically, the rest perform better. You're more creative, you're more adventurous. So here, this part thinks that by pushing, it's actually the reason we're achieving a lot. And the huge discovery is that when this part steps back, you give it a vacation. You really try to unhook from it, you know, have it sit at the sidelines, sit on the curb for a bit. Then the rest of you comes out to play and, and you find that you achieve more. Uh, and so it's quite, this is quite an interesting um, dynamic for humans, this particular part of our, uh, 
our personalities. Yeah, as you spoke, that reminded me, and I'm not putting an equal sign here, but it reminded me of um, what, what the folks in voice dialogue refer to as the controller, um, who basically voluntarily never takes a vacation, 24 seven. Yeah. And so it's, to get to that point, you said, you know, where at, at its healthiest, it takes a rest and everybody else performs better because it takes all the pressure off everyone else to, to meet the standard. Yeah. So I, I love the language there. And it's, again, I don't mean to equate it. Well, with, well actually, I think, it, I think the controller, this is a good question because yeah. I think the controller is coming from a different part in each of us because it's likely the part of us that's the strongest part. Okay. Yeah. So if your strong part is creative, that may be the controlling part. If your strong part is autonomy, it just happens to be in my case, which is probably why you felt the controlling energy come okay. up, right? That's where it lives in me. Okay. That doesn't necessarily mean that that's where it lives in other people. Okay. And so, so, and, you know, the yin yang of being human is the need to control, which doesn't go away. Mm. Right? Ideally, you have a switch so you can switch it on and off yeah. so it doesn't run you. And, and it's not, uh, it's not, it's not controlling you, <laughs> but, but it, but it is needed for human, um, preservation, self-preservation. So you need to be able to step into control, but you also need to be able to turn the switch off. And then the other side is to let go the other parts where you just ride with the, you know, the energy, like when you're in flow, your creativity, you know, lets go. You know, you're not controlling it. You can't be in flow and be in control. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't make yourself create. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so you have to become aware in yourself when the controlling switch is on and then gradually learn how to turn it off for a bit. Now. Yeah, thank you for that, especially that, that nuance that there's, you know, that the, the controller um, could li- could really reside in in that dominant subpersonality as opposed to being this separate entity that's the same for everyone. And I really appreciate that. That's that's clarifying. So thank you. Yeah. Yeah, that's a question, not an answer. Yeah. No. No. no, no I'm, I'm just you know we're you know clearly there's no way to prove any of this. Right. right. I'm I'm sharing from my own experience and hoping that people benefit from this way of thinking about themselves and. But you know, there's no. It is a meta, it is a metaphor. It's a construct. It's a way of, you know, it's a way of thinking about who, what humans are all about. Well, yeah, and it's it's what, what I and I appreciate that that it wasn't the uh, you know the definitive answer to to it was another question basically because it's so easy. I mean, what's going through my mind as you were speaking was okay. So standard bearer, and this is the mind doing what it does. So controller and voice dialogue. Um, the number one, the one in the Enneagram, number one, who's the basically the you know the judge or the teacher or the perfectionist. Um, but these are all designed to be useful for us and to use, not to be necessarily exactly, precisely right in any way. Yeah. So useful yeah, in the best exactly. uh, meaning of that word. Is to help you thrive. Yeah. Well, I have four categories: thrive perform, achieve, and grow. Okay. And so, I and if you think back to the Greeks, they had, you know, you went to school to learn a philosophy of life. Yeah. And so, you know, in a way what I'm doing, and we'll get to the philosopher in a moment. <laughs> Good segue. In a way what I'm doing is I'm, you know, I'm on, a, I'm on a search and I have the luxury of being in a field where that can be my work yeah. as opposed to a hobby. I'm on a search for a philosophy of life that works for me. And I think that coaches ought to take that call on that we're searching for a philosophy of life. And it's not that we're teachers of that to other people. A lot of the time, a lot of the time we're eliciting what other people's um, values and beliefs are. Mm -hmm. But I think it's a really cool idea that we would be part of our life's journey and growing as a human being is to develop and continue to evolve one's own philosophy of one's own life. And that's what this is. It's just my, you know, my philosophy and to the extent that it's helpful to other people. I like like that you frame it that way too, because having one's own philosophy of life, I want, I want to go back to 
to ancient Greece. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Wouldn't it have been cool? You went to the different schools. Yeah. yeah. Rather than getting hit with the knuckles with a ruler. Yeah, I know. I know. Well, so then let's move to the meaning maker because I yeah. think this is a really interesting uh, part. It's nine in Enneagram. Mm -hmm. um, the, what's it called? The um, mediator often. Or... So it's, the, it's the part of us that can listen to all the rest yeah. and see the wisdom and the wholeness and find the meaning in all of it. So, and, and I guess, you know, if there's this dialectic between free will and spiritual destiny, uh, in, my, in my inner world, this part connects to the spiritual m messages, okay. whether they're part of me or whether they're an out, outer force, higher power or whatever. Uh, and this is, this is, in my experience, this is the inner coach. So I interview it last and it has the wisdom of the moment okay. that allows whatever's agitated to settle, at least for a few moments. <laughs> Might not last long, but <laughs> at least for, you know, <laughs> sure. you know, all hell wake breaks loose. You know, you've got dreams, you're all over the place in the morning. And then, you know, and then, and then this is the voice that I think we're all trying to tune into that inner wisdom, that inner coach. What's the way through this in the moment that would give me a, a little more equanimity yeah. so I could function better today. Um, and I love uh, it when I'm coaching someone using this model. Um, so usually with clients, I, within the first two or three sessions, we go through this inner interview, this, this th inner 360, you could call it. Okay. Yeah. I love when we get to this part because this part tells my client something that can be often be like incredibly simple but you can hear the shift you know if there was an energy wave you know if you could i don't i mean it'd be interesting to put an eeg on and look at what happens in the brain waves but you you can you sense the uh okay that's what i need right now that's the wisdom i need for the moment so that i can keep going and deal with the craziness and messiness of being human and it is messy if you've got nine perspectives and nine sets of needs and values, your interaction with every moment is constantly changing and unpredictable, and it makes it hard to be human. And uh, so this is a beautiful, uh, beautiful part of us that um, is, um, I mean, it makes me stop and pause. It doesn't just come, you have to actually quiet I imagine putting all the parts out to their orbits. <laughs> okay, guys, you've had your turn. Now, let me just like tune in, and uh, and then and then there's some kind of message every day that I love, you know. And I write this all down. It's all in and I've got it all charted, and you know, it'll probably turn into some kind of book as I figure out the patterns and things. But it's a really beautiful voice. And when coaches talk about the client has the answers there, they, that's where it is okay. for the moment. Yeah. yeah great. Just the, the, that connection there to the, to the spiritual um, and, and meaning making uh, the, the language that I have around that is, is ultimate concern or ultimate purpose. Um, and, and everything gets measured against that. What I think, you know, the purpose is, um, so I just, I love the language that you've chosen to use around this as well. So we're, we're looking at, we have probably about uh, 10 more minutes to go, if that's okay with you. And um, I'm not sure which direction, I have two directions I'm thinking of. So let me put, let me put them both out there and you can, you can respond in, in, in what I know will be an honest way. So we mentioned some coaching questions. And I had a preview of these, um, which access each of these subpersonalities, and you also mentioned um, the, the prospect of some needs that we as coaches have sometimes that can actually get in the way of connection with our client and these subpersonalities and, and generate resistance as opposed to doing any good. Um, so, which of those feels like a good direction to go for you? Or we can maybe do both of them. Yeah, let's try. Let's uh, yeah. let's we can touch on both. So. Yes, yeah, so when, so we know from DC and Ryan's work that when we uh, step on someone's autonomy, we generate resistance. Mm -hmm. 
So when we tell people what to do, that's one of the main fundamental reasons why the, the force of coaching is to allow someone else's autonomy to be in the driver's seat instead of in the expert model where the expert is in the driver's seat. So I think if you think, so if you think about coaching as elevating autonomy in order for person, people to become more self-determining and more self-authoring and more self-transforming, you know, whatever their agenda is, um, then, then that led me to think about all the different needs we have that step on people's autonomy. And I've been talking about that for a while, but then I got thinking as I've been working with my own ego parts, with all the needs that are at me focused, you know, it dawned on me that these are all human and natural and we can't change them. They are who we are. And, but in the moment that we're in a coaching relationship, then they are, uh, and the motivational interviewing literature shows this, they in fact move people backwards in readiness to change because people feel as though that it's about the coach, it's about the helper, which means you're not focused on my autonomy and my self-determination. You're focused on your needs. So those are needs like I, uh, I need to be the expert. I need to be the one, the smarty pants that knows a lot. Uh, I need to uh, be in control. So I want to fix you. I need to help you. I need to rescue you. I need to look good. Uh, I need to compete. I need to be better than the other coach. Uh, I need to be special, you know, so on and on. So those needs, which we all have, right? I mean, I mean, I don't think any of us are saints uh, that maybe the Dalai Lama and a few other people, but most of us are mere mortals and we have these needs. And so, so then this model helps us think about, you know, I got, gosh, you know, I have to put, move myself into a mindset where they are out at the curbside. They're out of the way. The need to judge, the need to be right. That's got to be, it's part of our psyche, but we've got to put those parts of us, we've got to park them. And we have to come from other parts of us, which are to serve, to be benevolent, to be empathetic, to be curious, to be courageous, to be creative, to look for clarity, to be purposeful. So we want to play, we want to activate the parts of us that serve others in a really productive way. And we want to turn down if they had dials or switches. We want to switch off the parts of us that where it's about me. We want to switch on the parts that are really truly helpful to another person. So I think that really speaks to a way of thinking about coaching presence. Uh, that is another way to look at it. You know, there are many ways to think about one's presence, but uh, that, that really helps me because if I notice that, so I notice mindfully that I'm the one that needs to help right now, then, and I can catch myself, I can avoid the resistance that comes from that or the shutdown. So, that provides some self-empathy too, because you realize that's not easy to do. It's not easy to put your needs aside. And, and as you become a better and better coach, you get better and better at really doing that. And I think that's why as a coach, we, we need other endeavors as well that do serve our needs. Sure. Because it's hard to do that every hour, every day, right? Because we still have needs like that. My life work is balanced between coaching and doing things that I want to do too, because I have a strong need for being creative and being smart and being, you know, and being an inventor. And I have those needs too. So they don't get served when I'm coaching. Right. So I have to find other ways to, to do that. And then the other piece is uh, coaching questions. And we could just share this deck, uh, the PowerPoint deck, because the questions are there. Okay. I think the way to think about it is that if you trust that, your client has all these capacities used or underused, then they're there to tap into. So you could say something like I said earlier, if your body has a, had a voice, what would it say? You know, tell me about when you were adventurous recently. So that the part of you that comes alive, what would it, what adventure would it bring to this moment? 
you know, the part of you that is wise and makes meaning, what would it say right now? You know, the part of you that wants to march to your own drummer, that doesn't, isn't thinking about serving others, what would it want? So I, I think you can just frame it in terms of, you've got different parts of you that have these different things, what would that part say? And in our book, we talk about the need to be a good parts detector. Because when you're new at this, the stronger parts camouflage themselves and step in sure. to take over the meaning making. And you have to be, you've got to start to recognize that voice. That's not the meaning maker voice. It doesn't sound like that. That sounds like this voice over here. So, so you know, there, there was a TV show that, that was, you know, with the real blah, 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 step up, please, stand up, please. So as a coach, you're wanting to make sure you're really getting the part. Like if the exec, if the creative needs more order, you really want to help them access the part of them that gets that and not talk over it, you know? So, so yeah, so you want to, the more you discern this in yourself, the easier it is to kind of call on that part. Cause you know how to, it's like calling the dog by the right name. You sort of know how to call it out of people. So that's a more advanced skill obviously than it is when you're getting going. But first I think message to coaches is just trust that that's all in there. And it's deeply wired in our genes, that it's been well studied by scientists. We've all got these abilities to a greater or lesser degree, sculpted or, 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 or unfinished. And that, that, that if you go digging, you'll help people find the, um, these capacities and values and strengths and needs. I really, I really appreciate how you went through some of those perspective questions. Um, and it was, it was in some ways, it was a, a short, uh, we, we didn't speak a lot about competencies or the, or the International Coach Federation, but it was a short introduction to powerful questions, coaching presence, mindfulness, which is kind of not exactly the language of the ICF, but self-awareness. And then I would even go, you know, you went into you know, self-kindness or self-compassion because we have to take care of ourselves as well. So all of that, um, all of those tools come together and they're just, uh, yeah, I just, I really appreciate the beautiful way you wove them together in those last five minutes um, without actually, I don't think deliberately speaking to them, but just speaking to, you know, how somebody could best begin to take these sub-personalities and ask some, some questions. Right. Well, I, you know, I, let's just take a moment on that because I think what's very cool is that the ICF coaching competencies um, and the competencies that the NCCHWC has developed uh, are, are aligned. Yeah. I mean, in a way, those were deeply, you know, etched in my uh, being because I've been a coach and teach training coaches for so long. And, and, and then you wonder, okay, how is this really grounded in human nature? And can we find the underpinnings? So, uh, so the, the question, it works in practice, but does it work in theory? You know, is there really an underlying scaffolding? Yeah, yeah. So, so if, if one, of, if one of my missions has been to translate science into coaching practice, so what I've really been doing here is taking coaching practice and translating it back into science okay. to give it. And then you have this back and forth that makes both richer. Yeah. So what you're really saying is that the practice is enriched by this different way of looking at it. And, and then that gives us a sense that yes, what we're doing is profound because the basics are sounds so straightforward. Okay, so I need autonomy and I'm creative and I make meaning once in a while. And you think, okay, I've heard this before. I read, you know, all the books I've read. And you sort of think, oh, well, you know, so what? But the truth is that this stuff is simple, but it goes deep as our genetic history. And that's what's so beautiful about it. And so it takes years to get these simple things deeply grounded in us uh, and when you get you know which is why i love being a biologist because biology is all about finding the system 
Okay, sure. You know, it's messy, but not a mess. There is a structure and there's a system and it's chaotic. It's nonlinear. It's moving and changing and adapting all the time. Like our heart rates, like our breathing, like our blood pressure, all those are systems. And this is a system too. Um, probably governed, governed ultimately by the physics of the universe. And who knows whether we'll ever make those connections anytime soon. But it is, there is the scientific, this, I love scientific truth. I mean, I really do think that when we can get to the biological, chemical, physical truth behind things, then we know we can lean on it and it's solid. And we can work with people and we've got, we're grounded in the truth and that's just a great place to be. Yeah. And you know, just what I, besides the content of what we've been speaking about for about the last hour or so is the passion uh, that underlies all of it for you. It's, I mean, it's really palpable even through however many miles away we are from each other and through whatever whatever the science is that allows this. It's amazing that, that, that through cyberspace we yeah. can. Um, that I, I really appreciate, this, you know, not only, but especially the, the passion there. So, so, so thank you for that. So, I've, you know, we're bringing this to a close right now. I've been, we've been speaking with um, when she writes and when she's, engaged in uh no let me let me rephrase that when she's um engaged in her executive function it's, it's margaret moore but when she's engaged in her creativity and um in this conversation with me it's it's meg and it's uh, it's wonderful to meet both of you and to, and to engage as we have uh, keep your eyes open for um organize your emotions optimize your life which is uh, expected to be released in september of 2016 um, you're listening to the Future of Health Coaching Summit, uh, sponsored by Teleosis Institute. Um, I'm Reggie Mara, and once again, I'd like to say um, from the bottom of my heart uh, for, your, uh, for your wisdom, for your intellect, for your heart, for what you're bringing to um, coaching in general and the health and wellness coaching world more particularly. Uh, thank you, Meg. Reggie, this has been a total joy. So thank you for drawing it out and drawing out the story. It's been wonderful to be with you. Thank okay, you. Thanks. My pleasure. Right. Bye bye.